0: Gym is wearing his
1: My view of the world was: let's go put funding into two teams. Let's get the capital city up and running. With the Dragons being a development team, if you like, at the time, no one likes that term. And North Wales kicking it off. Put a few of the older senior players up there because you know there's a bit of money up in North Wales that, that could have got thrown into it. I know for the the Georgia week we had um, you know the senior players. We, we had a good old chat around the contract situation, and they chose that week because of. Sort of a week that they felt they, they could have the conversations and it wouldn't affect uh, the performance on the weekend. Italy at the time was, was huge, it was massive, and um, you know it took a long time to get a decent night's sleep after that one. You know, when you go in the president's lounge and you're, you're there with uh, a lot of the board and that sort of thing, the so body language, the lack of eye contact, I, uh, I pretty much knew at that stage that Australia may well be the last game.
0: On this episode, I'm joined by former Scarlets and Wales head coach, Wayne Pivak. Wayne, you're looking well. I'm not saying that you look younger. (laughs) Do you feel younger?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I've had a rest, had a bit of a break. Been back to New Zealand um, before the storms came, so that was good. Got some good weather and then, um, yeah, just sitting back now and watching the odd game of rugby. and only just got back into watching it actually. uh, Went to a a club game, Pontypool against, uh, who were they playing, Bargoid. Oh. And so uh, got invited up by the ex-chairman, um, Rob Butcher, when I had lunch there with, with a few of the old boys from Bargoid, and that was the first game back. And then went I watched the Scarlets play Edinburgh, and of course went to the Test match on the weekend, and that's been it.
0: I don't envy coaches. I look, winning, losing, it just looks like the most stressful environment. <laughs> Internationally, like the club game, I imagine it's a bit different because you're in it all the time. You can have influence on squads and longevity, but international coaching, especially now, and you look at the turnover of coaches, which is high profile, stressful job. Yeah, it is. I mean, <clears throat>
1: You're talking about club rugby. Club rugby, you can have a bit of a, a, a bad patch if you like. You can come back, it's a long season and you can still make playoffs. You can hit the ground uh, running in the playoffs and, and end up winning a, a championship. But you get to competition like the Six Nations, you lose game one. Well, there's a Grand Slam opportunity gone. Uh, and then you sort of, you know, you drop one more and you're gone. So it's a lot of pressure to start well and perform throughout the whole competition. So, you know, and the whole nation is watching you. In a, a place like Wales, it is uh, it is very much a goldfish bowl, which is what people have always uh, talked about. So it didn't let me down. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of pressure, I've got to say.
0: It, it got to the point where you didn't want to watch rugby. So you just needed a complete break from it.
1: Well, yeah, just, you know, obviously uh, uh, getting moved on just before a World Cup, uh, I think it's the same for Stephen Jones and Gethin Jenkins, you know, it sort of leaves a bit of a sour taste in your mouth at the time, you just need a bit of time out, I guess, to reassess and, you know, where do you want to go from here and so that bit of time's been and gone and so, yeah, back into it now, I'm back looking forward to the next challenge.
0: When did you know it was over?
1: Well, you know, after Italy, the Italy game in 2022, you know, we made a few changes and, a blade of grass. We win that game with a bonus point, and we come third. and It's been a successful uh, campaign given the the squad we had with injuries, but it wasn't to be. And uh, I'll uh, relive that try many, many times. So that that Italy game was put us under pressure. We had to do well in South Africa, and we I thought we did very well in South yeah. Africa. You know, we uh, should have won that first test. It was an epic game, and uh, you know we got our first win in South Africa, in the second test. So we sort of answered the critics for the that period of time, I guess and then coming into the uh, the autumns it was Georgia you know it was definitely Georgia after that game you know when you go in the president's lounge and you are there with uh, a lot of the board and that sort of thing it's the body language the lack of eye contact i uh, i pretty much knew at that stage that Australia may well be the last game so uh, that was my gut feel anyway
0: and which one i think you've said it there out of them two losses and we're going to bring this up back to positivity but we may as well get the shit out of the way which was the tougher one for you personally with the structure of the team, the pressure, you know, Italy being the Six Nations, Georgia being an Autumn nation series? Which one for you is the the biggest regret? You say regret, that's probably a, a tough one, but the hardest one to take.
1: They were both very difficult to take because they're games that uh, you're supposed to win. We hadn't lost before at home to Italy, uh, never lost to Georgia. So, um, and previously against Italy, we'd won by 40 points, you know, the year before. So that was, that was very difficult and probably... The way that game panned out, you know, we were so close to getting a bonus point and enjoying the last few minutes. You could sort of see that try come once the first tackle was made, and that Italy game was a very, very painful one, um, because it was a Six Nations match, so probably at the time that that seemed the biggest. Georgia was, dare I say it, after you've lost to an Italy, here we go again, sort of uh, feeling really, but Italy at the time was was huge, it was massive, and... um, you know it took a long time to get a decent night's sleep after that one.
0: How does an exit come around and we're seeing it more now, and you hear around Eddie Jones leaving England there was discussions happening for what he was chatting to Australia so he potentially felt it was coming. Joe Smith when he leaves all the talk about the all blacks are like Ian Foster's now not being kept on or he has to reapply for his job six months before a world Cup. just for the listeners, how does something like being sacked or moved on or relieved of duties happen at the top end of rugby? Well, <clears throat> the
1: hardest thing is the waiting game, really. So you you have your your, your campaign finishes. Uh, regardless of whether you're being moved on or not, we review each campaign. Um, and I'd sit down with my CEO, uh, then was Steve Phillips, uh, and we'd review the campaign and go through it game by game, um, the learnings from it and what we needed to do to get ourselves where we wanted to be for the next campaign. Uh, with the backdrop being the World Cup, and we're always working towards that. So um, with our World Cup plan in mind when we're reviewing. So the waiting game from, I guess, the Australia game, uh, I was due to go to to France to do the, uh, with Martin Williams, our team manager, and Bobby Stringen, the trainer, and, and Prav our medical guy. We we sort of head over there and finalised the hotels we're staying in, training venues, that sort of thing. So I was due to do that, but instead I obviously wanted to remain behind so that we could uh, get this review done as quickly as possible, which was just really probably the week to 10 days waiting for a result. Families wanting to know what's happening, that sort of thing. People back in New Zealand are asking questions, and it's really just a waiting game. So that that period of time is probably the worst. But I had a feeling that, you know, time was up. So when the news came, it it didn't shock me, put it that way, when uh, we just sat down with Steve and I and had a chat and said, well, look, this is a decision that's been made, and, and you move on.
0: How clearly is that? I don't know how much. I mean, it is very interesting. I know it must be tough for you, but the top end of sport and them tough decisions. Obviously, Steve's no longer there, yet he's made the decision. Is it a case of, you know, when you sh- like, you're like? showing clips from the game? Because I imagine Steve, Felix, wouldn't be looking at the game the same way as that you see it or yeah. I see it no, or there, the experts see it.
1: There was no going through video clips. Um, so really, uh, you know, they did their review. Uh, we did our review and then I sat down with Steve and we went through my report, if you like. And then, um, yeah, it's a decision made by uh, the board at the end of the day. I guess they sign off on whatever uh, recommendation is put forward. So, you know, you've got to respect that. It's the same, well, uh, a lot of the board have changed or some of the board have changed. But, you know, the same people or a lot of the same people gave me the opportunity, which I was very grateful for. So, you know, all good, all good things come to an end, they say, from time to time. It was just uh, the timing for me was was the thing that was uh, a little bit disappointing, obviously, But um, because everything we were doing was towards the World Cup. And, you know, when you get to that World Cup stage, uh, once you get your hands on the boys, you've got eight weeks preparation as opposed to the normal sort of 10, 12 days. And, you know, you can achieve a lot in that period of time because uh, the way it stands at the moment for international rugby, the way the window is, the international window is that basically club coaches and trainers uh, and the medical people are preparing the players to hand over to you. You have that short window to get them right for the first test match of any series. So we were really looking forward to that uh, that window of opportunity with the players getting them injury free and then being able to tweak whatever you want to take. Eight weeks is a long time to change your attack or do whatever you wanted to do. So, you know, obviously Stephen Jones and myself talked around the sorts of things we wanted to do at the World Cup. But um, So that
0: was the biggest frustration, I guess. Was there a frustration in hindsight now and this is professional sport and actually like the bits of drama that live around it. Great to chat about. But Gatlin's obviously doing TV and he's clearly, as we know now, would have been having conversations. And this is what we said, me and Goody on The Rugby Pod. How do you follow someone like Warren Gatlin with, he's got a gate at the stadium. Do you know what I mean? As in everything that goes with that. And then he comes back and does TV. Welsh rugby, as we know, maybe some some things to do with you. I don't think it is. I think it's historic, and there's so much more to do with Gats and the succession plan. But then conversations are happening. Like, how are you now knowing that that was happening? Because the way that you came in was all nice, it was organic, it was through the Scarlets, and, you know, Gats was going to leave. Whereas there's this like murky, dirty part of sport where he's clearly having conversations in the boardroom.
1: Yeah, I don't sort of worry too much about that because at the end of the day, the ball was in our court, you know couple of results i think if we'd after beating argentina you know the the discussion at the end of the autumn was going to be around whether we were rolled over through to 2027 which were the original discussions you know way back three years ago three and a half nearly four years ago um because i think from a a union's point of view you learn so much in the first four-year cycle that um your coaches are better off, you look at Gregor with with Scotland, you know, after going to his first World Cup, I think, as as head coach of Scotland. And, um, you know, how they've moved on as a Scottish team and improved. And I think that's a great example of, you know, you learn a lot from your first cycle, and then you put that into practice and any changes that you need to make. And I think we were, we, we learned a hell of a lot. And so we weren't too concerned about any conversations that may or may not been going on—it's sort of out of our control, anyway. So, the focus for us as coaches in the autumns was was to get results. And after Georgia, sorry, after Argentina, I think if we had won against Georgia and Australia, we probably would have enrolled over to twenty twenty seven. And that's sort of how cutthroat the job is at this level. But um, they're fine margins—the difference between winning and losing—what success looks like. But you know that going into this sort of role that um, these things can happen. So, you know, it's it's unfortunate, but you you move on.
0: When you're in that role and you've taken it, and we were talking about it, and loads of people were talking about it, you, we were like, Wales are so good, but the regions are struggling. Where's the succession plan? Like, who's coming through? Like, when's the next Alan wynne Jones? When's the next Falotau coming through? Biggers, thirties now playing in France. Who are the next players? Could you feel that? I mean, you because you were in the in the regions, and this is the million dollar question now that everyone's speaking about, and we can speak about it because it felt like the cracks were being papered over because the national team were doing so well but everyone's speaking about well Wales are on the way down. Like this is before you came in Like as in just as Gatlin left well Wales are on the way down because if you look at the profile of the team and we also watch the region struggling well it's obvious. Yeah so <clears throat>
1: part of the the interview process to get the job was about a nine month process and uh, it was a global process uh, they obviously got a a long list if you like and then did a lot of investigative work around the, the different candidates <clears throat> or the people that they wanted to speak to as in the WAU and the then CEO Martin Phillips and uh, Gareth Davies chairman um, sort of ran that process and so I had a number of meetings over a, a long period of time and ended up getting down to the final few and having a, a decent interview in front of a, a big panel and then there was another interview with a former a Welsh coach. So it was quite an involved process, but all the way through, there was a discussion around and how we were going to go about the development because of the profile of, of the group of players that had gone to the 2019 World Cup in Japan. So we're very well aware of it. So we did a ranking system from 1 to 15, looked where the holes were and set about um, identifying the next Toby Falatao or the next Alan jones or whatever it may be. And it wasn't an easy exercise. We We went through probably... 20 to 30 players in the first 18 months we took a few uh, hits in terms of results excuse me in that first uh, autumn series which was revamped and it was a Northern Hemisphere um, series but we saw that as a as a free hit an open opportunity to develop a lot of young players and as I say we did, it was about 18 players in that first 18 months and then another few over the next sort of few months so we ended up with a a lot of players that got opportunity uh, some of them we felt didn't quite step up to the plate, others did. Then it was a matter of, you know, bringing them in and making sure that they had, what we were looking for was anywhere around 20 to 30 test matches by the time they got to the World Cup. So Will Rollins, you know, if he wasn't injured, would hit that mark easily. He's, I think he's around about the 2021 20, now. You know, guys like um, Callum Sheedy have had about 15, 16 test matches. Louis Reece samit was around 20 test matches. So by the time they get to the World Cup, those guys were will be hitting the sort of targets that we think they needed to have, the good international experience under their belt to be able to handle a World Cup. So it was it was a process that was spoken about and it was an exercise that we took on straight away. And so a lot of players have been exposed to international rugby over the last three years. But unfortunately in Wales also, we've had a lot of injuries, um, more than I've ever encountered probably in any other side. And it's just unfortunate. It, it happens in the modern game. But um, certainly that was the, the big talking point was we need to do a lot of development over the first few years of our reign. Which I think we did.
0: Was there any point where you looked at it and you mentioned the depth there, where you're like, "Fucking hell!"
1: Yeah, well, there are, there are there are some positions. You have got to realise it's a small country, not a lot of rugby players, only four teams. Um, so if you think about it, you're picking three lucid props in your squad. There's four lucids to pick from, so you know uh, it's not like we've got the depth of an England or a France or a New Zealand. So you know we've got to work very hard, not only. To identify the best in their positions, but then also get them up to speed to play test rugby, whether that's their strength and conditioning, whether that's their technical and tactical appreciation of the game, or their mental toughness.
0: Yeah, I've always wondered the remit of a coach when when they come in for a team like Wales, who've been successful and you've won Grand Slams and you've done well in World Cups, made the semi final, could have beaten South Africa and gone on to play in the final. A team like Scotland, one thing that frustrated me as a player, we worked on these four year cycles after about the first year off the back of the World Cup. And it used to drive me mad because I was like, well, at the minute we're shit. So why are we talking about a World Cup in three years' time when we're finishing bottom or fifth of the Six Nations year on year? Why don't we just put all our eggs in the basket of getting the very best player? But that was Scotland then, but there was a part of me where I saw Wales, and I was watching it when you first came in. And again, just to go back, we all had opinions. It was like, Adi Follegats. You look at the age of the squad. But you're thinking, well, actually, if they're building towards a World Cup and there is this new cycle of players, then it is, I can get I can actually reverse my opinion on why a team would look forward to the World Cup because you won the Six Nations, you've won the Grand Slam, you've got an aging squad. So surely the powers that be know that because they've been across it for years and years. get through that point. Like Scotland have. You know, Scotland was shocking in twenty nineteen in the World Cup in Japan. Everyone's like, Gregor needs to go. Off the back of that, we were poor. In the Six Nations, we did nothing. We won one, one game or two games, and it was how quickly it can change. Everyone's talking about Gregor Townsend, keep him on for the next four years before the World Cup. I just think Wales should have been allowed to see where it went. Yeah, right? well, if, if, that, if that's what you've been given, if the remit is the World Cup, or do you, it, so it's obviously yeah, the two, so, the two so, losses,
1: right? Yeah. So when we when we kicked it off, um, as I said earlier, Martin Phillips and Gareth Davies were in charge, and. Uh, it was around that rebuilding phase early on and that COVID-stricken sort of uh, autumn period, which was the, the Northern Hemisphere teams playing each other in a one-off sort of tournament. That was a that was a free hit for us in terms of putting some young players out there. But we were always told Six Nations, though, we've got to put out what we believe is the best side. Mm. And the development is around that. So you've got your autumn series, your summer tours, those sorts of things. But Six Nations is about winning. Um And unfortunately, in that first one, you know, we started off with a hiss and roll. We had Italy at home. I think it was 42-0. Then we had, um, you know, some, I think, three tries each. 33-30 loss to England. We had a a close game against France, an intercept, and we were down 27-23. So we knew we weren't too far off. The pressure was on in that second uh, Six Nations in 2021. Um, Again, we exposed a lot of players between Six Nations, Uh, And there was a lot of pressure for us to do well. And that was the Six Nations which we believe Wales should always do the best in because you've got Ireland at home and England at home. You've got three blues away, Italy, Scotland and France. And around that time we felt if we were going to win it, that was the year to do it. Um, We talked around three wins the first year and we didn't achieve that. So we underachieved. So this uh, 2021 was important to us and we, you know, as the tournament went on, we got stronger and stronger, and we um, probably played our best game and a fantastic game where we lost by two points right on right the final whistle against France, not to get a grand slam. But so that set us sort of set us up. We're heading in the right direction. So we we just felt that get to the World Cup, get that eight weeks, and we could replicate what we did in 2021. But we knew there was going to have to be some change um, because you know the squad would be another two years older.
0: The gaps texture when he got the job. But how was that? Did you text him? No, were you, were you filthy?
1: No, we. Um, as I say, I, I, um, we we're already already planning to go back to New Zealand for my eldest boy's wedding. He got married in the January, so we we're always going back. But no, um, I didn't hear anything from Warren, and uh, and I haven't texted Warren. I've just let him get on with it and just moved on. So, you know, at some stage we'll bump into each other and say good day.
0: Would you do anything differently when you look at the house now? And I mean, fucking, it, it's burnt down. So there must be a part, not that you're glad, but... No,
1: I think the the other thing that um, was out of our control, um, uh, which was huge for Welsh rugby, was we had a chairman, a CEO, the two people I've mentioned. We've had Julie Patterson, hugely experienced, 30 years in the job, one of the best people I've worked with in rugby anywhere, Um, just is so good at what she does. She was head of operations and and she's left. um, Craig Maxwell, head of... um, the sponsorship marketing sort of area gone all those people went within about six months and that's pretty much top draw of the Welsh Rugby Union and I don't know too many organizations where you'd have all of those people go within six months so there was a lot of change um, and whilst that change was happening we were just boxing on doing what we were doing so there was a lot of experience left all around the same time so there was always going to take a bit of time I think from the administrat- administrative side of the game in Wales, um, backroom sort of uh, side of the game to to get up to speed, if you like.
0: And right now, how are you feeling about the game? I know you did the TV at the weekend, and I like, just because we were doing this interview, I don't normally do it, but I thought i would put your name in, because I didn't see, because I was in Paris watching the game, so I didn't see the pitch side stuff, but hey, it's, hey, it's flipped on its head, isn't it? You're, <laughs> you weren't pitch side this time. Obviously, no, no. you were with Amazon when Gats was pitch side and... You came in. You're in the in the comfortable studio.
1: Yeah, I tell you what, it's a lot different watching an international where you don't have the pressure of the result on you. I can tell you that mm. much. I, it wasn't the best game of rugby at all, um, and I think both coaches would have alluded to that. But um, it, uh, it was it was still interesting watching a game and and watching it unfold and the sort of ebb and flow of it, you know. And just after half time when Louis Rizeman got that intercept, sort of. Martin Johnson was sort of uh, talking, come on, boys, get down. Let's get a drop goal. Let's get back into this, you know. But um, it was really interesting to watch ex-players and and obviously how I sort of felt watching it as a coach.
0: And did you enjoy it or not?
1: I didn't enjoy the the, the overall game because it wasn't a great game of rugby. Mm. Um, You know, having watched, albeit in my lounge, watching France against Italy a couple of weeks before that, what a great test match that was. Scotland as well. Scotland against France I thought was a good game, you know. Uh, but England-Wales, yeah, didn't really live up to it. It was sort of two teams under pressure. You can see new coaches and there's a lot of change going on. It's going to take time for both sides to sort of hit their straps and look like both teams, uh, well certainly Wales, trying to limit the damage and, and sort of trying not to lose a game rather than go out there and grab it by the scruff of the neck. And uh, England just got on top.
0: Yeah, they definitely looked better, Wales. They looked more physical, especially with the lead up that they'd had around the player strikes. Let's get into I mean, there's so much, isn't there? There's so much drive. We will bring this up. How would you have dealt with that with a coach? Because I watched the press conference between Gatland and... It wasn't between. They went and did the press conference, Gatland and Alan jones but it felt like they weren't on the same page. Gats is employed by the union, as is Alan Win jones but he's in there for the players. He's been the captain. He's the highest-profile player. I yeah. mean, when you're watching that, are you, are you like well, this was always going to happen, or are you thinking, fuck, thank God, I'm out? Yeah, well, we had, um, there's usually something going on, you know, when
1: you've got, um, got, I think we had 27 staff, and, you know, you've got 35-odd players in camp, you know, so you've got around 60 people you're working with, and there's always going to be something going on. Someone's got something going on in their lives, and you've got to sort of, as a head coach, you get involved with lots of different things. I know for the the Georgia week, we had, um, you know, the senior players, we, we had a good old chat around, the contract situation um, and as a head coach you're, you're across the contract situation and you know it has gone on and on and on and the players were just saying then that and they chose that week because it was sort of a week that they felt they, they could have the conversations and it wouldn't affect uh, the performance on the weekend and um, you know you could tell that a cross-section of the team were, were really really concerned obviously around the timing and time was going on and it's been well documented, hasn't it, that um, you know people have mortgages and families and they want to know what's going on in, in six months' time, or in the, in the case now of the side, it's only a few months till till the end of their contract. So, look, as a coach, you you've just got to get the players to focus on the rugby. So any meetings they have, obviously you have those meetings, but then it's flick a switch and you know make sure that everyone's focused on the job because preparations for me nine tenths of a result on the weekend. So in a, in a week where they are obviously having talks around potential strike action and that sort of thing you know that um you know there's there's a that is a, a distraction you you can't get away from that so then you look at um individual roles do people you know if you're if you're not switched on in training you don't pick up a role or you get it wrong then there's a concern that you go into that game and it might be you know defensive line out from six coming around to, to block the short side and you stay on the open side and boom we had that against france and 2020, you know, where a player forgot his role and Hooker went smash straight through uh, Johnny McNichol and scores a try and, you know, poor old Johnny, he shouldn't shouldn't have had to make that tackle on his own. So forgetting a role, it could be because there was a distraction in training and you haven't prepared the way you normally do. So it can affect a game. There's no doubt about that. And um, only the players that played on the weekend will know, you know, what that preparation was like and and whether or not it impacted on the result, but it would be a tough one with uh, a lot of meetings, a lot of discussions going on, and especially if you you know you, you feel as though your coach wants you out there, and players and coaches have good relationships, you know when you when you've been through and won test matches together or won a championship, you know there's good bonds there, and <clears throat> that would have been an awkward time for everybody.
0: Mm. Could you see it coming or not? I don't know how much you can say. I know obviously part of the exit is that you can't, and I'm not here to bag. Wales or whatever, but it's interesting getting some proper insight in terms of the lay of the land in Wales and your experiences with the Scarlets. You'll be close to some of the players still, I imagine. But could you like it feels like well this was always coming, whether or not it was now, whether or not it was next week or before the World Cup. Yeah, well I think it's already in the public domain that
1: the Georgia week there was talk around the contracts. And I know we we left it that look, we box on, we get these last couple of games out of the way. And then if things haven't Um, improved or been sorted by the time of the Six Nations. Well, that's a different different kettle of fish. We'll have that conversation when we come to it. But there was always, from the WAU's point of view, um, you know, discussions with the clubs and funding had been discussed. And so we're always um, under the impression that, you know, there was a deal to be had very uh, shortly uh, after that, uh, in around the autumn series. So for it to drag out, it's really, really disappointing. That's, I can see how the players will be very frustrated because, um, you know, they're hearing one thing, I guess, from their clubs from time to time, and, you know, and, and you want reassurance from the, the WRU that, um, you know, these things are going to get sorted sooner than later, and uh, it's just a shame it got to the, where it did. But, you know, you've seen people like Nigel Walker now, you know, stepping in and, you know, I love the way he's he's been fronting the media, and um, you know, and he just put his hands up basically and said, "Look, there, there's you know, we could have dealt with this a different way from time to time." And I love the honesty of, of Nigel, and um, I think you know the players respect that as well. And I think, um, well, I'm really really happy that the test match went ahead, obviously, and now we've just got to make sure that you know an agreement between the WAU and the clubs happens sooner than later, and uh, those contracts uh, get out there and the boys uh, boys can move forward.
0: Is it the fact that there is no money? Does it, is that what it boils down to? Well, I think it's a tough time if, if you look across the world,
1: you mm. know, um, the Australian Rugby Union, New Zealand Rugby, everybody, you know, you've had COVID, we've got a war going on in, in Ukraine and, and how that has a knock-on effect to the economy here. And so nobody has, has got the budgets that they used to have. And and so, you know, that means um, not only players, coaches, we're all in this uh, together and, contracts going forward I think people are going to have to expect a, a drop off in, in you know the levels that they've been used to
0: and then with that just some expectations for the Welsh fans listening or or watching how do Wales get out of this is this going to be a, is this a long horrible process
1: Well, look I think there are some really really good young players and we're seeing them um, over the last couple of seasons come through you know but it takes time. It takes time, as you know, at test level. Some players can hit the ground running, but most of them take a bit of time to get comfortable in the environment in the change room in the jersey. Um, with some of the great players around them that they've grown up watching on T V, you know. Um, so the Christians of the world, you know, the Dafford Jenkins of the world, they're young men, you gotta be very, very careful. You know, you look after their well being in terms of their bodies in particular, at that they still haven't um, fully Um, matured if you like Um, and I know with Chris he's picked up a couple of injuries you know in the first week or first couple of weeks of camps because just the intensity that we train at at test level and the volume uh, the volume is not often as much as uh, you'd you'd have over a working week with some of the clubs but it's the intensity that we train at you know a lot of high speed metres over a short period of time and really pushing the players to try to tra- uh, train at that intensity that you might plan in a test match, and if you if you're not quite ready physically, it can take its toll. So, you've got to be careful when you introduce players, and you know how many test matches in a row you'd play them or, or big games, because it's accumulation of the knocks, not just in the test matches, but also in the training as well. Because a lot of these trainings are very physical these days.
0: Hawkins as well, centre yeah, Mason look, Grady looks
1: good. You know, Mason we had in in the autumn series. Off the back of um, Byron Hay- Haywood's under twenties group, you know, both those players stood out in the in the twenties, along with Dafford Jenkins and Chris Shinza, You know, who and we had already capped uh, Chris. So those those are they're big players for the future. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's hard though when you put in like a Mason Grady on the weekend. I was just thinking when we put Joe in against Australia, we had Gareth Anscombe inside him, George North outside him, and what a good ten wants is a lot of communication from that thirteen or guys outside him uh, coming in to let him know where the space is while he's getting his timing off nine and that sort of thing. And so young guys had to come in and uh, play pretty big roles defensively. One of them would have been no defensive leader for the, for the backs. Uh, and then the eyes and ears for uh, for your 10s. so yeah it was it was a big big opportunity for those boys but and, and I'm glad everybody I know that was on the panel that I was on on, on match day was saying look, don't judge this young fellow on one game you know no matter what happens in this game because he's got talent there's no doubt about it he's big he's he's strong he's fast he's got a good step and he's got everything that to indicate that he's going to have a big career at the top end of the game. You know, just like a Louis rees came on the scene, you know, you've got to give them time to develop and get their confidence at that level, even if they're pretty confident people anyway. Um, they've got to get used to the intensity. They've got to get used to the training. They've got to get the repeatability into them, especially back three like a Louis rees It took him a bit of time, you know, but look, at the, look how he's come on in the game with a bit of time. So, yeah, there are some good young players. It is going to take time, but I do believe, I still believe that eight-week build-up for the World Cup they can achieve a lot in that period of time.
0: Amongst all the old guard, Lewis Re zammett is either one. And I say that well, maybe because you're smiling, but also my best mate is team manager at Gloucester. Big shout out, Raver. And George Givington It's so funny because when he carves up like he did uh, during the fallow week and he was on the bench, he comes on and he carves up. It's ridiculous to see him. And then they go on BT to the coach skivs and say, oh Lewis Lewis resign. You can see he don't want to talk about it. he don't want to talk him up because he knows it's probably going to cost him three hundred grand to re-sign him on top of what he's already getting paid. But how good good is is he the shining light or is there a few I know you've gone through and we don't want to put a lot of kind of heat or pressure on him.
1: No, look he he has got what you can't coach and that's express pace. I think back to the Scotland game in twenty one, that final try that he scored. He scored two tries in that game, but the, the second try where he kicked ahead uh, and the gas that he showed to go past Vandermeer, I think, mm. and it might have even been uh, – who was at the back that day? Was it Hoggy? Hog.
0: We'll say yeah. It, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah, say yeah. it was.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember because it was but, on my side, I was pitch side, and it was it was during COVID, right, yeah, as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he, he just – you know, that's, that's just genuine pace, but also to kick the ball at pace like he did with the control that he had. So there's more to him than just, just speed as well. I think he put in a – Twenty-two to twenty-two touch finder in that game as well in the second half, and you know he's got a big boot on him, and the the scary thing is he's still developing. He's going to get better and better, you know. Other side side of his game, he's worked on which has improved is his high ball work, you know, and his defensive side of the game will get better as well. And um, you know you got a world class player there in a year or two's time, and you know Dowie Lakes another one, you know. Unfortunately, again, he's a young guy that's come through. He's big. He's powerful. You saw in South Africa, you know, he scored a great try in the second test using his brute strength. Again, he's one that uh, has got a big future in the game and, and you know, he, he, for me, will be the successor for Ken Owens. Uh, there, there are a few guys, you know. The Jack David Morgan. Jenkins. Jack, Jack Morgan, yeah, another good player. Needs a run of games, I think, uh, you know, he's a
0: seven. Um, I you think he's a seven? Yeah, look, yeah. He, he,
1: he's, he's not that tall, Jack. Mm. Um, you know, and, and tips, I guess, after the World Cup. You know, that, that might be his swan song if he, if, he's, if he gets selected to go to the World Cup. Um, and, you know, him, Tommy Rafael, don't forget Tane Basham, who's who's been out injured. You know, he, he's had 10, 11 test matches now. So Wales is really well served with, with sevens. Um, look, there are some good young players coming through, and I think now it's just a bit of time with this coaching group as well. It's not just about the players having eight weeks together, um, <clears throat> but that coaching group's new and they've only had, you know, what is it, six weeks together probably.
0: Some big decisions as well that Gats made, dropping bigger, I say dropping, Alan Jones resting him against Scotland and he put Falatao on the bench, didn't include Tipperick. As a coach, how difficult is them decisions to make, especially in Wales where you've got these superstars? Dropping Dan Bigger for me was a massive call and then I hear through the great it's because he shouted to Rio Dyer against Scotland. But managing, I suppose, the profile and the experience of them players, was that hard? Because you inherited that, and that's a good thing, but also can be a tough thing, I imagine.
1: Se- selection's always tough because, you know, you're going to have 15 happy guys. Uh, you're going to have some guys on the bench, um, 16 to 23, that think they should be starting. You're going to have some guys happy to do that role, coming on making an impact, closing the game out, whatever it might be. And then you've got the unfortunate role, um, you know, I always talk about the three roles and they're, they're equally as important. So the guys have got to start well, obviously you've got guys that finish the game, and then you've got the guys with the third role, which is to help prepare the team. Once they get over the disappointment, it's always a conversation for me with those guys that you know, now you've got a role to take seriously and that is to do your homework on the opposition. So we run the opposition plays as well as we can. So we stress the boys during the week and they get it right for Saturday. So it's never a pleasant thing naming a team. It's always uh, good to get to sort of Tuesday and have the team. We normally name the team on a Monday night or a Tuesday morning. Um, and then, uh, then you can relax a bit and just everyone's got over their disappointment and they get out there and they train well. But, you know, going back to the selection for that you're talking about, you know, only Warren can answer it in terms of what they've discussed behind the scenes, what they wanted to get out of this after the Island game, what they wanted to get out of the Scottish game. Obviously, there's still a championship to be won after one round, but he would have to weigh up obviously the performance of that first round. And yeah, he he made made a lot of changes. So, I think now um, looking at it, it's got to be about. The World Cup it's got to be about who who can go to the World Cup and who's not up to it so he's going to get those questions answered by game time for some players obviously and there'll be some you know tough calls to be made for the World Cup squad with what is it 33 players and we normally run around with 35 to sort of 37 in, in a squad for the Six Nations so it's, uh, it's always uh, selection's a tough thing
0: yeah I hated that role Oh, we need you to get the team better for the week. Hey, oh, <laughs> no one wants it. Oh no, and some people were great at it. You know, some people fully embraced it. I was just filthy, and I was. I just. But I understand why it's important.
1: That, that, that can affect selection too. You know, we often talk around personality of different players. Some of them don't want to be that number three. So, are you better going with a guy that's going to do the team role when you know he's going to be number three when it gets to a World Cup? So those are sort of some of the tricky discussions. You know, you might have the third-best halfback, for example, or the third-best 10. He's such a competitive bugger. You know he wants to be there, and he's going to be annoyed, let's just say that, if he's not in, in one or two. So is he more trouble than he's worth? Is he going to help repair the team the way you need it done? So those are, there's all sorts of conversations going behind the scenes when it comes to selection. Sometimes people will say, he's clearly the third-best player, but he's not getting picked. Um, there's generally a reason for that, and and our number three has is, is got to do a thankless task at times and uh, and do it well.
0: Chatting to John Barkley, some positivity. Um, good boy. Yeah, well, very good boy. I, well, I said I've got Wayne in the studio. Big smile. I said, mate, well, this is a good start. I said, you got, and <laughs> it's easy to smile because there were the glory times, and he just said, and a lot of people have different experiences with coaches. He just said, best coach I've ever had. That's what he said. I said, mate, tell me more. And he just said that you were one of the coaches that were just in it for the lads. So just give me an idea of what it was like. Because they were glory days during the Scarlet. You had a fantastic team. You had a great bunch of players that were young coming into their prime. It was three years in the making.
1: So when I got there, uh, Nigel Short was the chairman at the time. Good guy, Nigel. He he basically said come in for a month. It was after... um, uh, who had been there before me, with Ireland now, defence coach, of oh, course. Oh, Easterby. Simon Easterby. Simon was the uh, the coach, and Simon um, Simon came down to New Zealand, actually, flew down for a weekend, I think it was the LV Cup, to meet me, and um, we got on well, and I got offered the, a position there as an assistant to Simon. Simon, I think, knew that he was moving on. Um, so before the season started, I was promoted to the head coach. So got in there and had a, a good look I was told, take a month and then just give us a rundown during the pre-season as to what you think needs to happen. You know, what do you need to, because we've got ambitions, we want to win the championship, you know, we want to win it within, I think back then, we we talked about five, three to five years. So uh, we did that and we had to make some change and um, it took three years. One, you've got a contract cycle, so you've got half your team generally coming off one year, the other half the following year. So you don't actually have the team to work with that you've handpicked, probably till the third year, which is what we had, and we had some some cracker signings. You know, um, John Barclay was already there, and what a top bloke in terms of the way he played the game. I'll um, we'll get on to him and Cubby in a minute, but um, and the difference between those two. But um, Ty Burn, uh, Ty Burn, yeah, yeah, Ty Burn. You know, yeah. he he was our last signing that that year and I think I'm allowed to say it was uh, less than £40,000 we signed him for, you know, wasn't a lot of money, but uh, he just wanted an opportunity. He was, uh, you know, in, in Dublin there and there was a lot of players uh, there, so he was a fantastic signing for us. Hadley Parks, we brought over from New Zealand, um, I knew he'd go well, just the nature of the guy, you know, he'd embrace the whole um, Scarlet's community and be a great ambassador for the game down there, which he was, you know, gave everyone the time of day. We had Werner Kriya come over from South Africa, you know, with him and Samson Lee, It gave us a couple of decent tight head props, which is really important. And Johnny McNichol was a, a big one for us because from an attacking point of view, you know, we knew how we wanted to play and, and at fullback or on the wing, he could do a job for us. So we, we had some good signings, but it took a while. We had Jonathan Davies come back from France and the team he was in, Claremont, I think, on average he was touching the ball three, four times a game, you know. He's doing a lot of defensive work, chasing a lot of kicks. And so again, he hadn't, you know, had ball in hand and, and looked to get on the outside of players and put wingers away and that sort of thing. Um, so it took a while for Jonathan to get up to speed. Obviously, the way we wanted to play the game, we tweaked a thing a few things over the first couple of seasons and I think we lost our first three games. And then we went on and won about sixteen, seventeen on the bounce. And we had a great season, won the championship. But John Barkley, just the difference between, say, a John and a cubby boy. Uh, hopefully Cubby's listening because I want to bring him down a peg or two but John Barclay um, we we say to Cubby Cubby I think he topped the stats that year when we won the championship might have had 30 odd turnovers and John Barclay was in third on about say say Cubby was 36 he was on like 26 and he was in third and we say yeah but Cubby have a look how many attempts you made to get your 33 John had a a third of the amount of attempts that you did so actually he's been more successful than you have And so he went away and he he, uh, took that one on the chin, old Cubby. But the good thing about Cubby was he then went and, you know, he he spent a lot of time with John um, looking at his game, his decision-making on when to go and have a crack at it and when not to, you know, when to go in and slow ball down. Um, And he learned a lot about the game and he became a better player for that. But John was, um, when Ken Owens wasn't there with White, when he was away with Wales, I think there was a period there where John was on the out with Scotland and so he was our captain between Him and Hadley Parks, and they were you know, we had a good spine of the of the team that um, was playing matches when internationals were on, and we gathered a lot of points in those periods as well, which was important. Um, but John was a, a good leader, you know, a great rugby brain on him, loved defence, loved the breakdown. Um, what he lacked, uh, probably, in, in say. The wide channels that Cubby had, he made up for in all the other areas of the game, and his decision making was spot on. You know, nine times out of ten. So it was a pleasure working with those guys. We had a lot of fun that year, uh, and the following year when I think we made the final again, and, and we got to the semi-finals of of Europe. So, yeah, great guys. I always had this philosophy with them that. They've got to enjoy themselves. They've got to work hard. We've got to create an environment where they want to come to work. They enjoy saying goodbye to the family, and they're coming back to their their other family, if you like, their mates. And um, we wanted to bring like a gang mentality to it, you know, where you die for your mates and uh, work hard for each other. Go out and put it on the line on a Saturday, and then but you had to celebrate success. There's a big one for um, you celebrate success because, you know, I think John Barclay said uh, it might have been – when we were out in Dublin before the game against, who was it, uh, Leinster in the semi-final. He said, boys, or it might have been the final against Munster. Listen, boys, some players go through their, their careers, play test match rugby, but never win a championship. Mm. They never get to hold up any software. And he said, I've never done that. Playing for Scotland, playing for the Scots, we've never won anything. And I'm 30 or 31, whatever he was at the time, you know. Let's not have what ifs or have the old, we need to lose a final to win a final. So he was a big, he was very, very... Good at um, getting the players' mindsets right before big games.
0: No, he, he speaks about it all the time. And again, like winning stuff is why you're in it, aren't you? Like you want to yeah. taste glory.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's what it's all about, you know. Um, if you're fortu- fortunate enough to win a championship, they are special days, they're special nights. They usually go for a few days and mm. and they're, uh, they're great memories, you know. And then you have your
0: reunions down the track and they're a lot of fun. Yeah, it's the memories. It's, it's definitely the memories. Like I smile and like I was at Saracens and we know the issues with that. I don't care. Like the memories that I have. I don't remember the games, you know, but like winning, you put your body through that, your time, your effort. Yeah, you know, I couldn't imagine just, well, I can imagine because I played for Scotland and didn't, Well, you know, when someone says to me, what was it like playing for Scotland? I said, there weren't many good days, but fuck, there were some great days, but yeah. I wish I had a lot of really good days. Mm. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, all that hard work that goes into it and people talk around the money in the game, you know, that players get, uh, you know, good salaries, coaches get good salaries and there's bonuses for winning, you know, like if you make the playoffs or club land, it might be if you make the playoffs, you get X amount or, you know, if you, you win the championship, you get X amount. But I can tell you, no matter where I've coached and there's always been bonuses and contracts that when that final whistle goes and you've won, it's it's the last thing people talk about, and it's usually a day or so later that you go, oh, hell, got a bonus today mm. or, or a couple of days ago. That'll look good in the bank balance come the end of the month, but it's always about getting into that changing room and that camaraderie and, uh, yeah, these special times. Yeah.
0: One thing that John mentioned was when things were going well, Lads would be ringing in the middle of the night. Wayne, where's my contract? And he said, not expecting you to answer, or even knowing that you answered, but apparently you answered. It could be two in the morning, and they're ringing you saying, "Where's my contract?"
1: To to, to this day, my wife says, "Can you turn the phone off? You know, because quite often it does go. You know, there would be a little ding there, or, or it rings." Especially back in in the in the club days, <clears throat> you know, uh, my old job too. Before I was a coach, I was in the police, and uh, so back in New Zealand, my, I'd always keep my phone on because I'd always get the odd call from one of the local constabulary sort of saying oh Wayne listen we've got uh, so and so in the back of our car you know Um, so it was always uh, a good thing to be able to help the boys out and uh, and that happened on on the odd occasion but um, no and some of them have got a really good sense of humour you know there's the the Cubbies uh, the um, Rob Evans, those sorts of boys you know they'll, they'll quite often just ring you where are you we're at such and such you know and come out and join us and you know, you've got a, a pretty special group when they when they feel they can do that, you know. Um, but the good thing about them is we, we had that sort of uh, relationship, but it was always one when it was time to work, you worked. But it was always rewarded with, you know, celebration when they got the job done. But I always had one rule, we don't celebrate losses. Mm. Um, simple as that, really.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's a, a brilliant thing. Like I, I'm, I really do, and I've had coaches like that. Alex Sanderson was one when I was at Saracens. Richard Cockrell, for all his ills, was another one. I think it's really important. And look, these men come from all walks of life. I didn't have a dad growing up, so I needed a good coach, someone that I could lean on. And there's a couple of things around that. I know we're segueing slightly, but I couldn't stand Fabian Gautier because of the way that he used to speak to me and used to speak to players like a dog, like just used to shout and abuse and, you know, you just didn't feel any love. And it was interesting, I was with Mark McCall. In, uh, and Mark's quite a cold character as well. Like he's pretty straight. In it. And the way it worked at Saracens was pretty good because you had Mark, uh, he was the boss, not just of the players, but of the coaches. And the coaches were your mates. So Joe Shaw was there, Alex Anderson, Paul Gustard, Dan Vickers, all top lads that we could chat to. You didn't have to talk about contracts, you didn't talk about selection, and it actually the model worked really well. And I personally needed that. I remember we were skiing in um one of these trips that Saracens used to take us on for a team building. And uh Mark McCall was pissed and we were all drinking. And I remember he was holding a big blow-up penis under his arm. I've told this story before, but I thought I'd share it with you. Big blow up penis. And then we just got chatting and Mark was always like a little bit off with me. And it turns out he he didn't want to sign me at salaries. It was Brendan Venter and then Mark became boss and I was there on a decent salary, still playing internationally. And then he was, oh, you know, you played well in this game. I said, oh, yeah, like, do you think? And he said, that's the issue. I said, oh, what's the issue? He said, I've just given you a compliment, and you've just asked me again whether or not that was the truth or you're always looking for reaffirmation. So mm. it's a really interesting moment in my life. And I was like, you're right, I am. He said, you know, you're six foot eight, tattoos, you're a big man self-proclaimed enforcer i think there was an element where and it happened with a couple of coaches actually where Vern cotter as well where you had one persona on the pitch but off the pitch i was different and part of that is now in hindsight being a parent and understanding that side of it because i didn't have a dad growing up and they were my dads you know you go into that environment and the power and the responsibility that you have and I think that that's what some people like some people forget not internationally but I think in the club game certainly like you're the male figures because they're yo- mm. again these are young men you know they're they, they, some of them are teenagers they're in the prime now at the mid-20s and I think
1: that's what people need to realise you know you, and we talk around celebrations and that sort of thing it's not like the old Wild West days when I played with. Where- you know, things would get broken and, uh, you know, buses, the back seat might get ripped out and a few few little things used to happen from time to time. But now it's, it's, it's talking about a controlled environment where we might say, boys, we're having an hour together, you know, go and do the afters upstairs and then we'll back down in the change room and we'll have a few drinks. Bearing in mind some guys couldn't because they had to drive, you know, whatever it was. But there, So it was never pressure, but it was there and it's available and, you know, we used to lead the way and, and, and have a couple in the change room. Then the boys could relax. Coaches were having a drink. Staff were having a drink. You've got to remember that it's a gladiatorial sport now. People that haven't played the game that watch it and have a lot of these opinions. You're asking these boys to do things that out in the street you'd get arrested for, you know, flying in and just cutting a guy in half, you know. Um, and so at the end of it all, when they've done it together and they've achieved the result, it's a natural thing at the end of a working week. You know, a company makes a lot of money. They close out a couple of deals. The boss will shout a few drinks. You know, and you got to remember, a lot of these guys are young men, club level in particular. You know, some of them are 18, 19, 20 years of age. What are their mates doing? You know, so it's it's about understanding that yeah, you're a, a role model if you like, and there's certain things that go with the salary that you get, but also. There's got to be a balance, in, in my view. In club rugby, it's about getting that balance right. Saracens, you know, um, Liam Williams went there. He, he used to joke about, I see you boys are off to temby this weekend. We're off to bloody Bermuda <laughs> or somewhere, you know, and, it's, and laugh and joke about it. But, you know, so for a club like the Scarlets um, and a lot of the clubs, you know, when you do have success, you've really, really got to enjoy the ride, you know, um, because it doesn't last forever.
0: Yeah. I love the gladiatorial analogy I use it all the time and again I find myself having to keep talking about it and telling people that the beauty of the sport lies in the fact that not many people can do it because it's dangerous because it's physical because there's contact and I'm not I I, I went through a phase of second-guessing myself like should I be glorifying these things but that's what the beauty of this game is and I just think we're in a really weird period just globally like society and everything that goes with that. We should celebrate that, right?
1: Well, I think so. I, I think so. It's um, it's something that's been part and parcel of the game. Before the game went professional, you know, I played, it was amateur. It was, you played for the camaraderie of your mates, you know, and you loved the contact, otherwise you wouldn't do it. And in those days, there's a bit of biff, you know. <laughs> you could throw a couple and, um, you know, people used to get stood on and jerseys ripped and it was all part and parcel But You loved it, you know. Um, but you were that type of person. And uh, what that allowed you to do was to get that out of your system on a Saturday <laughs> and in training during the week, and you go on and be this person out there in the workforce um, when you went training or playing. But it's a great out. It's a great way to, to be physical. And, and, you know, let's face it, um, most of us from time to time need to get physical, you know. And uh, the rugby field is, is, a, is a great way to do it in a controlled environment. But, yeah, there's a lot of hard work goes on there. And the players – so much bigger and stronger and faster than when I played. You know, um, we thought we were pretty tough. You know, the, the rules were you, you know, someone held your jersey if you didn't if you didn't throw one, you know, you're going to hold your jersey all game long. You know, and so there were rules in the jungle, but nowadays it's it's totally different. It's just big men. The collisions are huge. You know, and, and we we're seeing that with the injuries with the, you know, so many knees and shoulders and things like that.
0: And that's why I'm all for. And this is probably part of the demise of the game that is why i'm all four guys getting paid 250 350 450 500 because i've just turned 40 now like luckily i say luckily i've worked hard to get into this space where i've now carved out the word transition i hate using that word transition (laughs) but i'll use it but i'll also look at mates who are fucked you know and their bodies are completely wrecked there's no pot for them to dip in. Knee replacements like, you know, you'll see now players that you've played with or know of your generation, hips, knees. Oh. Hibbard's had a shoulder replacement. And the, probably the tier below that where they were maybe earning 50 grand, 60 grand, not life-changing money. They need to get a job. They going and work in the city. They can't walk. You know, they can't do these things. So for all the glory, I do just, you know, there's a part of me that is like, these players should be getting paid. And this is again a lovely little segue onto the next point because we're hearing in Wales now that players that were on a quarter of a million pounds and people listen to just be like, oh, for a quarter of a million pound. Well, we've kind of give you a snapshot on why these players potentially deserve that kind of money, but if the money's not there to the point where they've been offered thirty grand. Like how sustainable, like is there going to be this mass what well, there is, there's going to be a mass exodus now, do you think, out of the out of the regions? And then this is a, a two pronged question when it's a big question. How sustainable is having the four regions?
1: Yeah, so and and, and that's the big question. You know, <clears throat> we touched on it um, at the game on on Saturday, Wales England, uh, and Woolby was talking around. You know, three versus four. So if you've got a certain size pot, it's got to be split four ways. If it's split three ways, you get more money. The problem we've got is no one wants to be that team that that disappears or uh, gets swallowed up by another region. Um, so there's always that issue, but I think at the moment, um, and it's not just players, because I'm experiencing it now behind the scenes with my agent around the next role, and <clears throat> and there's a little bit of activity bu- bubbling along, and but the money that's being spoken about is, you know, nothing compared to say in clubland. Uh, with what I was getting at the Scarlets, which was four years ago, you know, four or five years ago. So it is coming back. There's no doubt about it. Um, there's not as much money in the game as there was, and that's just a fact of life. So it, sometimes the grass looks greener, doesn't it? And you oh, will you know, we'll lower the 60 cap rule and we'll we'll go across to England. You know, the, the budgets there have come back. You know, it, it's across the board, really. So I think players just need to understand that they are going to take a, a, a hit. Coaches are going to take a hit. Um, but still at the end of the day, you know, we're in a privileged position, I believe, because we're getting paid to do our sport, whether you're a player or whether you're a coach, it's a pretty good gig, really, let's face it. Um, but yeah, you've got to, depending on where you are in the, in the player ranks, you know, you've got to factor in the cost of living. It looks a lot better, say in England, potentially than say Wales. But if you've got to go to live in London, you know, do the numbers, you know, and you've got, you know, you've got to get at least another 50 grand. And uh, your pay packet to sort of break even, so uh, just for the cost of living. So, yeah, it's 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 that one around the funding to get a bit more into the players' pot, I guess, for, uh, for or their contract. Fewer teams would allow that, um, and it's something that um, has been discussed in Wales ever since I've been here, um, coming up nine years. So I don't think it's a, it's a problem for today. It's been it's been there for a, a long while. But, yeah, I think with the, some of the spending that's gone on in the past, some of the contracting, you know, we're, we're finding ourselves in the position we're in now.
0: Tough question to answer. Do you have an opinion on the regions?
1: Yeah, well, look, um, back in about uh, two, oh, I'll be guessing, might have been around 217, somewhere around there, there was talk of amalgamation. And initially it was, I think, the Blues and, and the Ospreys. It, it, it fell over then the Scarlets, and I was coaching the Scarlets at the time, and uh, we were pretty successful, but I looked at it from a rugby point of view and said how can we sustain uh, what we're doing at the Scarlets when I, we know what's around the corner really the funding was an issue for us if you look at the Scar- uh, sorry, the Crusaders feeding into the All Blacks, you know, the spine of the All Black team, you look at the Saracens you know, when they're, when they're at the top of the, their game, you know, feeding into that England team Top teams in the world, you've got Leinster feeding into into Ireland. Yeah,
0: Just, Leinster in two thousand, uh, Leicester in two thousand and three. Yes, was the backbone so, of that England so,
1: team. You know, and how do you how do you get that success in Wales? So when I did a paper exercise and looked at the Scarlets combined with the Ospreys, I said that team can compete with anyone in Europe. The, the, the Scarlets team, on its day, with with no injuries, well, we got through to the semi final, so we did compete. But you put that then Ospreys and Scarlets team, when those all those good internationals are in their late 20s and around the 30 mark. You know, that, that team would have been successful, I believe, for for quite a number of years. Now, for me, it was a rejig. The capital city's always got to be there. That's the Blues or Cardiff, rugby as they are now. The Dragons, to me, they unearth so many good young players. They, they, they just develop players from other regions. Um, a lot of them stick to, to the Dragons, but a lot of them move on as well. They've got so many good young players coming out of there. And you've got North Wales, which is untapped. So my, my view of the world was let's go put funding into two teams. Let's get the capital city up and running. Uh, and with, with the Dragons being a development team, if you like, at the time, no one likes that term, and North Wales kicking it off. Put a few of the older senior players up there, get the marketing right, because you know there's a bit of money up in North Wales that, that could have got thrown into it. That, that keeps your four teams, but two teams with the bulk of the money and two feeding in. And over time, you do a con it. You do what Ireland have done. And then Connacht went on to win the championship in 2016, I think, the year before we won it. So it can be done, the models there, you know. And But again, no one wants to be that team that gets less money uh, and for a number of years have to sort of hit certain targets to, to build up. But there, there were certain, certainly discussions around that at the time. But, you know, it's it's really, really difficult with the, with the, the system we've got in Wales, whereby you know, you got to get a certain, certain number of votes around the table. It's, it's not that easy just to get something pushed through, as we've seen.
0: Well, say in a year's time, how do you think we might see things? Do we do we think like that? Something like that could happen.
1: Well, I, well, I think Jim, the um, governance has been talked about, hasn't it? Um, I think Rob Butcher was the chairman, and they were looking at um, an independent chair, and they didn't get that through. I think they needed something like seventy-five percent of the vote. Uh, at boardroom level, to to make that a reality, and I think that that would be a step in the in the right direction, um, because we've got some very very good people in Wales, but we've got some very very good people that have been in, involved, Amanda Blanc, people like that, who have moved on, you know, which is a shame because I think if we get the blend of talent right, and we just get the the number of clubs right, uh, whether that's three, four, however that's going to look, uh, and over time we, we the funding improves, then you know, there's a lot of talent comes through Wales. There's a lot of talent comes through, but there's a lot of pieces to this puzzle and it hasn't quite been put together yet. But I think there is hope out there that some of these moves will be put into place in the near future. And, and I personally would like to see some of those changes happen.
0: On a side note, and it's quite topical, and we're talking about coaches that are good fun and people enjoy their company, the news around the All Blacks. Going to tender is the wrong word, but opening... The interview process—it seems like Scott Robertson's got the job. Razor's got the job. Ian Foster's come out and said he's not going to apply for the job. It's all a bit weird, isn't it? That I don't like. I look at that. Scott Robertson on the podcast actually went viral, and he said to me, "Oh, I said I was pushing him so hard, similar to I've done you, like asking him, asking him." And uh, I said, "Like, what's the ambition?" He said, "I want to win two World Cups with two different teams, or go to a World Cup with two different teams." He said, "Win it. He can say that. It's Razor." And it blew up in New Zealand. They couldn't believe that he said this and putting pressure on the union and stuff like that to become all-blacks coach. And his name's getting bandied about, right? Scotland, if Gregor's not there. England, everyone was desperate to get him there. And that feels like the pressure has been put on Ian Foster. You're close, naturally, to New Zealand. What are your thoughts on how that's all unravelled?
1: Yeah, look, I think um, you've got to be very, very careful. Um, There's marketing yourself, getting out there. um, And then there's overdoing it as well. Um, And I think... Some of the theatrics and things like that haven't gone down that well. You know, the breakdancing, that sort of thing is great. Um, a few years ago, and I think some, a people, few years ago. I think some people have <laughs> moved on from that. Um, and look, yeah, Razor's out there, isn't he? He's putting himself out. Um,
0: but you think it's too much? You think he's pushing himself too much for that?
1: Well, you know, we've all got agents, and that's sort of the work that normally gets done behind the scenes. And look, I, I don't think any union likes to be pushed along, and I think the New Zealand Rugby Union, and this, this is just a sitting on the other side of the world, observing it all. You know, um, they've, they've got ways of going going about things. And Look, Razor's got a, a good record with the Crusaders, but um, Crusaders have a lot of All Blacks in that team playing at the lower level, so you'd expect them to do very, very well. No South Africans in that competition anymore. Um, is it as strong as it used to be? I see the Crusaders just got beaten by 31 points to 10 uh, at home mm. to the Chiefs. Um, so maybe... You're better off keeping your eye on the ball and uh-huh. focusing on the coaching. Yeah. And because players, you know, at times can uh, get a bit annoyed with some of the, the showboating and that sort of thing, if you, if we can call it that. But um, look, a lot of it's in jest and it's a lot of fun, obviously. Um, but I just think New Zealand Rugby Union, New Zealand Rugby the way it is, you normally let your results do the talking. And yes, he's got great results. Um, but with a side that should be getting good results. So I think for a lot of New Zealanders, there's still a question mark, and I think where he's going with it is being allowed to go and coach some, somewhere else, proving yourself with a side that isn't full of all blacks would be a good thing uh, for Scott Robinson. Look, he's not the only coach out there that's um, got pretty good results. If you look at what Jamie Joseph and Tony Brown have done with Japan you know, at that last World Cup, that's just fantastic, you know. Now, no doubt, those guys have probably got ambition uh, to to coach the All Blacks one day. You would think. Um, I know they'd have to uh, probably reduce their salaries quite a bit, but uh, the, I think the boys get well looked after in Japan. But so, I don't think it's as clear cut as as some people think that Razor just goes straight in there. You know, I think um, there would be a good case to have a serious look at people like Jamie Joseph and Tony Brown. I would have thought.
0: Yeah, their names are in there from what I've read. But what it's interesting because New Zealand don't normally do what they've done. Six months out before a World Cup. I mean, I know you've got the highest pressure job coaching the All Blacks and there's been a slight change of guard with Ireland and France coming to the top of the world rankings. Why would they do that then? Do you think, because that makes me think that someone like Razor is pushing them. And I say that because Razor, with all the hysteria and all the noise would be coaching a Leicester or would be over in Europe coaching, would have looked at a Leinster or gone to a Racine. Do you, the fact that he stayed there and all this is unfolded makes me think that there is pressure from that and they've bowed to it.
1: Well, time will tell. Time will tell. But um, look, I think you know, coaches are no different to players. You don't really want to get into the last year of your contract without having conversations. And most of these contracts will, will have a clause there whereby – you know, whoever you're working for, you'll sit around the table so many months out uh, and discuss the future. Uh, I don't know whether that happens with all black coaches or not, but uh, certainly uh, the way, you know, things are now in the professional environment, no one, you know, things can happen at World Cups, you know, a refereeing decision here, a couple of injuries in in round one to to key players can really um, affect the outcome of your tournament. And so... You know, I, I think if you've done a, a certain amount of work leading up to a World Cup and you've got the support of, your, of the players uh, and and the union or the, or the board that, that makes the decisions are happy, then, you know, going early for me is a good thing. Everyone knows where they're at and you can put that behind you and just focus on, on what's at hand. But I can see Ian Foster's point of view, he doesn't want all this playing out in the media when they're only a few months out from a Rugby World Cup, it's a distraction for players. It's a distraction for him. It's a distraction for the other coaches. And they just want to focus on three and a half, three and three-quarter years of hard work since the last World Cup. And obviously, from a New Zealand point of view, they're bitterly disappointed not going through to the final and winning. So there's always pressure for New Zealand to win. So they will be totally focused on what they have to do to win the World Cup. So, yeah, I can see this being a massive distraction.
0: Good drama, though. A lot oh, yeah. of movement at the top <laughs> table. It's brilliant for people like me talking about it. Other people talking and experts in the game, when you talk about the World Cup, no one's really speaking about New Zealand and the All Blacks, but some of the experts are saying that's the team. They're going to come good at some point.
1: Well, if you if you look at how they've gone since they've made the changes in personnel, um, assistant coaches, they've made some change there. And since that point, they've also got a settled selection You know, they've got their front row sorted out. Really, really important. They've gone from being, I wouldn't say average, I would say above average, but they've gone to being a very powerful scrum now, back to where they were when they were dominant. Um, You know, they've got so much talent and natural ability uh, and athleticism um, and speed in that side. I just think uh, if you write the All Blacks off, it's at your peril. You know, history tells you that. Um, I think that they've got the nucleus of the squad now with the changes they've made, as I've said, and the coaching group now having more time together uh, and that big lead in period to the World Cup. Uh, they're going to be dangerous. For me, all the pressure's on France at home. Um, I can see the All Blacks winning that opening game. Um, I can see them playing the team that comes second in the uh, South Africa Island Scottish pool.
0: And any other teams do you think? I mean, with France, I agree. I think they just look they Six Nations like they've got the weight of the World Cup on their shoulders they've not been as good I don't know whether that's because Ireland have evolved so much they look that much better than any other team is there any other teams do you think France have got enough
1: well they'll go to the other well either way New Zealand France are going to go through yeah um, you know it's
0: and then it's who they face because that other side. Yeah, yeah. It's weird how the rankings were done, eh? I know, like Scotland, poor Scotland, we've got South Africa and Ireland. <laughs> we'll beat South Africa, I think.
1: Well, you know, that's going to be an intriguing pull, isn't it? Because it only takes one or two decisions, you know.
0: Red card.
1: A fi- a, yeah, red cards. A Finn Russell masterclass on the day, you know, and and anything can happen. I think, you know, from a Welsh point of view, um, we talked earlier about should we, should the Welsh public be panicking, you know, about what's coming through. Look, this World Cup is set up for England and Wales really, really nicely, you know, and the Australians of the world. You know, Fiji's the one, is, is going to be the one that Wales have to watch out for, obviously, you know, because they will be good enough and they will, there won't be a repeat of Georgia. It's a World Cup, eight weeks preparation. So the 10th of September, I know that date because it's my birthday, and that was going to be... Game one at the World Cup. Oh, it was gonna be <laughs> F- Fiji Wales. Oh. So that game is huge. But if Wales can get through that, you know, they'll be playing in England, Argentina or Japan in in a quarter final. So, you know, there's nothing to fear there. So a team like Wales or England could easily find themselves in a semi final.
0: Again. Oh, mate, you you've still got the, the deep roots <laughs> of Wales, haven't you? No one's talking about them. No one at look, all.
1: Look, I'm I'm still confident that um well, certainly we were confident that you know, with that eight weeks, you know, you're going to get a, a massive lift. You're going to get the, the strength and conditioning better than it, it normally is. You know, technically and tactically, you got so much more time with the players, get the combinations right, get the tactics right. Um, so much more time to do analysis on your opposition. Everyone's known for a long time who's in their pool, you know, there's going to be a lot of homework done. Yeah, I, I, I just think, there's still plenty of time for them to improve and uh, yeah, it's gonna be really, really interesting to see how they go.
0: And again, we've gone, you've sold I'm easily sold by the way. Um, as I said, I got sold up the river to buy the boxing at the weekend. But you we went through some of the players. Like we spoke about Lewis rees Summit, uh, Fitley Fit Williams is one of the best players in the world. Josh Adams, Rio Dyer, Mason Grady, uh, Hawkins in the centre, Nick Tompkins, I'm a huge fan of. Dan Biggers, thirty. You know what I mean? So if he stops shouting at people, then he'll be in that position. Don't,
1: don't forget Gareth Hanscom coming back of injured. Yeah. You know, when he's not injured, you know, that was a big blow in two nineteen when when he got injured. Um, Wales obviously came through and did really well to get through to the semi final. But, you know, he was playing very, very well and he probably had that 10 jersey and you know, they using Dan coming off the bench a lot. Um, you know, you saw the Australian game, at our last game in, in charge, um, where we basically. You know, he said to Gareth before that game, listen, doesn't matter where we're on the field. If we've got, if you find space, whether it be through the hands or, or by foot, get the ball into space. Let's back ourselves today. You know, after Georgia, nothing to lose here. Let, let's, let's express ourselves, you know. Um, and he ran that game really, really well. Um, I think we're up by about 21 points. It might have been about 34, 13. He got injured and in a couple of yellow cards and it, it, it all obviously turned to custard, but he's a very good player. Don't write George North off, you know. I'm a, I'm a big George North fan. and.
0: 13 or winger?
1: Um, 13 for me. You know, um, you saw how he played in 21 when we won the championship. He's a big part of that. And don't forget the communication. I, I alluded to it earlier. You know, you've got the two young guys there. The things that you don't see is the talking or lack of talking or, or the ones that, excuse me, the ones that do talk. And, you know, George has got a lot of experience there, 100-odd test matches, you know, feeding information into into his ten and, a, and, a, and a, a George North on top of his game confident is a handful so I wouldn't write him off playing a big part in the World Cup
0: either Back Row Jack Morgan Aaron Wainwright Tipperick yeah. I mean, Chinza like, do you know what I mean like, I think now we're in the studio it could, it could have been me and you Wayne we could have been taking Wales all the way to the final it's so how you
1: look at the age bracket too you know and people. there's been a lot of talk around the profile of the squad you're going to need some experienced players and if you're good enough, you're old enough, in my view. You've got to have, it's one thing to say, this guy's this age, move him on. But if he's still the best player in his position, then, for me, you're cutting off your own nose. It's great to have young players in with those older players to learn from and, and, and help their development as well. So it's going to be really interesting to see which ones make it and which ones don't. But yeah, you need experience at a World Cup as well. So it's getting that balance right, I guess, is going to be the tricky part.
0: What player in the world play now when you've, coached against him like he's the one like I would have loved to have had like an Anton Dupont or I look at him I was like he is the best player in the world when I watch him you yeah, look he he's it's hard isn't it because some seasons
1: a player bursts on the scene he's been great now for a number of seasons and you saw that try was it against uh against Ireland wasn't it where he held the winger up yeah um I'm just trying to think of Mark Hansen. Yeah, Hanson in, in that uh, right-hand corner. Unbelievable! You know, to, everything happens so quickly to have that speed of thought and then the strength to go with it. Mm. You know? Great player. The guy I really love because I've coached him for the position he plays. He, he's one of
0: the best in the world. Is give me some hints. Don't tell me. Give me some hints first. Who's he play for? Your old position. Okay. Turnover king. Oh. Ah, yeah, Ty Byrne. Yeah, Ty Burn. Yeah,
1: Ty But also, um, you know, a Brody Ritalic. When he
0: when he's fit. How good is he in he, the low position?
1: You know, people talk about the, the concussions in the game and whatnot. He's an example for any young player that's, you know, got natural height. How to get your height down and, and how to use all that power going forward. And a phenomenal player. He's
0: a, he's a phenomenon. Like as in Brody yeah. was had, people say to me about the, the high tackle. And the, the great example was the Grant Gilchrist tackle on Geelong yes. where he got red carded. I always saw Grant Kilchrist as quite similar to Brodie Retallick in terms of how he played, but obviously tackles a little bit higher. But Retallick's a phenomenon because he's six foot eight and he can operate. And people are like, what well, just tackle lower?" Look at Retallick. Hmm. But if it, it's deep rooted in you, like Ebenezer Beth is not a low tackle. Like he, you know, he's a monster as well.
1: Yeah. No, he's um, he, he's 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 one in a million, isn't he? He's uh, he's a superb player. But I, you know, when you get second rows uh, getting World Player of the Year you know you've got a special player. Um, But Tyg Byrne for me, you know, over the ball, is one of the best in the game. When you've got a second row doing that, as well as your seven, your six, your two, you know, it's a a massive asset to have And the way he carries the ball, his defensive work, just his work rate, you know. So he's one for me that uh, might not be everyone's cup of tea in terms of the one player you could pick, but be hard-pressed
0: to go past them. Really? That's class because we keep talking about Caelan Dorris. There's so many players at the moment
1: leading into World Cup putting their hands up, aren't they? You know, it's, it's that time where you, you you want to be performing on the big stage in front of your coaching group and saying, I want that starting position at a Rugby World Cup.
0: Lastly, do you think Ireland will blow out for the World Cup?
1: Well, they always do, don't they?
0: <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> they
1: always do. Yeah. So it could be South Africa and Scotland. Wow, imagine that. And uh, you go from one in the world to about a Six overnight, but no, look, they are playing really, really well, better than I've seen. The consistency is there to go down to New Zealand and do what they did. To then come back, um, a few guys out in that first game against Wales, you know, I thought, okay, Wales going to have, have a good chance here, you know, um, uh, given the state of the Tide furlong being out, I think Jamison Park was out. You know, those disruptions, yet they just, that first 25 minutes, the first game of a championship. It's hard to do that you know um so they're the best prepared best irish team that i think anyone's ever seen so if they're gonna do it you'd expect this is the time that they're gonna go past the quarter-final
0: absolutely last question before you go with everything that's happened and you clearly want to get back into coaching is there anything you'd do differently do you think with how everything's unraveled here i mean one thing you've done it with great integrity and not that you you can do it any other way but I look at the way that that unfolded because of Gatland, who you took over from, and then he comes in and the whole pitch side thing before, and there was clearly conversations going, you know like as in you've taken it very well yeah I
1: always and it's like you say to your players, you know don't waste energy on the things you can't control. You know, control the controllables, if you like. And uh, that's all I've done. Um, You know, it is what it is. And now it's around making your mind up, what does the next chapter look like? And so having a bit of time out from the game was great. Popping back to New Zealand having the young fellas' wedding. uh, It was all good stuff to uh, just refocus, you know. And then when we came back to Wales, it was, what do we want to do, you know? Um, So purposely didn't go to any rugby games for a few weeks. Then went along, actually enjoyed it. Yeah, and then uh, it didn't take too long to come to the conclusion that there's a bit left in the tank, you know, and what people that haven't been there don't understand, it's like a drug in a way, you know, um, in that, you know, it's it's an adrenaline rush. It's like, if you're like a roller coaster, some people got to get off it, we'll never go back on it again. Once you've been on that roller coaster, if you enjoy it, you know, and the highs outweigh the lows. And it's hard to hard to walk away from the game, so
0: I'm not going to walk away just yet. No, club or international, they are very different, aren't they?
1: Yeah. So so I've enjoyed both. You know, um, fortunate I've had uh, had a bit of success at both levels, and um, and they, they are different. Obviously, international rugby is so intense for short periods, and then you get a bit of a break from the game. Whereas the club is is more of a marathon. And uh, it took me a wee while to get into that marathon of, of Northern Hemisphere Club Rugby. It um, took me a year or two to, to, to get my head around it and get the planning right and, and what have you. So that's a challenge, but um, you know, it's getting you back into rugby and I've you know, got something to prove really. So either level, I'd, I'd be happy with.
0: Yeah, one team that you referenced there, I know we're going off, we could chat rugby all day, but if Jamie Joseph went to the All Blacks, coaching in Japan, the way that they play, the way that they move, how receptive they are—I know it's a, a, a very alien culture, but wow, they'd be good to coach.
1: And what a what a great uh, what a great country too. Mm. Um, fortunate enough to go and see some of the games at the 219 World Cup, and the Japanese—the uh, culture and uh, I love the food. You know, it's it's a, it's a great culture. So I tell you what, that wouldn't be a bad gig to be honest.
0: Yeah, small bets though. Small beds. (laughs) So I'm not coming with you if you go there. Uh, Wayne Pivak, absolute pleasure to have you here, to come across from Wales to London. As I say, it's uh, a top-level coach in the studios class. Thank you very much. No problem, Jim. Enjoy.